Sarah. Hi, Allison. So I finally made it to a terrace. Whoa. <laughs> Even had a couple coffees this mm-hmm. week. And, and then I tried to go out to lunch the other day. It's so nice, isn't it? Yeah. Not having to cook for mm. once. So what did you have? Well, after a half an hour of waiting for my food, a very apologetic server came out and told me that they ran out of food. What? <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> it's oh, a little shocking. It is. What happened? Yeah, well, I don't know. It seems like this is happening a lot. There are a lot of places have to rehire their entire staff. So kind of all these newbies, waiters in the mm. kitchen, and, and, and they're all just getting up to speed, I guess. Yeah, a lot of students would normally be doing mm-hmm. some of these jobs, at least, and many of them headed home during yeah. the health crisis. So now it's a bit hard to find trained staff. That's, it would seem. Um, clearly, there are a lot of kinks to work out. Um, I'm going to try not to right off this place altogether. Maybe I'll come back in a couple of weeks to give them time to figure things out. So, Sarah, while you're trying to get <laughs> lunch, President Macron is out lunching mm. in the provinces. He's gone off on a tour de France. Right, right. After his coffee on a terrace in Paris when they all opened up a couple of weeks ago, he's now lunching in the Lot. Yeah, this is this very picturesque part of uh, southern France. So there he is visiting towns across the country, accompanying what they call in French la relance, mm-hmm. uh, the, the relaunch of the economy and the country more generally. Um, and he's trying to connect with people again. So yeah. he'll be making two trips out of Paris each week until mid-July. Yeah, yeah, to, to take the pulse of the country, mm. as he put it in an interview last month. Also, I guess to draw attention to parts of France outside of Paris, France of course, is hoping to reboot tourism, which has been pretty much decimated Mm. by COVID this year with all these lockdowns and, and, you know, travel restrictions and all that kind of thing. Exactly. So he's trying to promote France, but being Emmanuel Macron, he's also (laughs) promoting himself. Right. Yeah, riding on a little bit of a wave of of some newfound popularity. True, true. I mean, the last time he did this kind of thing, right, was when he held talks around the country a couple years ago after the Yellow Vest protests. You know, he wasn't doing well then. Those protests were pretty much directly Mm. aimed at him. Today, things are looking better for him. Yeah, a little bit better. His approval ratings were up in May. Around 40% of the French said that they were satisfied with him, which isn't bad compared to his predecessors True. at this point in, in his term of office. Um, and so this is partly connected to the, the vaccination campaign, which has picked up uh, speed. It's now on schedule. And also, for the moment, the government's managing to keep all these COVID variants in check. Uh, so he, he gets to ride uh, on the back of a bit of Positivity. Positivity, exactly. Taking credit or not, whatever it is. But um, what's important for him, of course, is looming around the corner is an election. Exactly. Macron is up for re-election next April, May. So just a year from now. And it's clear, isn't it, that Mm. this Tour de France is a bit of a soft way of launching his re-election campaign. Yeah. Also, it comes just a couple of weeks before regional elections at the end of this month, uh, the end of June. We'll be talking about that in in the next episode, actually, because they do seem very technical regional elections, but they actually do play an important role in French politics.
So, Allison, France has embarked on an experiment with medical marijuana. Oh, this is tricky, isn't mm. it? Because marijuana and cannabis are not legal in France, either recreationally or medically. Yeah, not at all. In fact, France still has some of the harshest drug laws in Europe, even though we do have some of the highest levels of marijuana consumption. Yeah, go figure. Mm. Maybe there's a correlation. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. The French Parliament recently opened a survey and found most French people are in favor of legalizing cannabis. But there, there is still a lot of resistance in law enforcement and amongst many in the political class to actually legalize it. But doctors who have seen the, the beneficial effects of cannabis on a range of medical issues, they've been pushing for the right to use it therapeutically. They've been working for the last two years to open this experiment, which finally launched in April. So this is a drug study, right? Well, no, that's just it. It's being called an experiment. They're using cannabis oils and vape products produced outside of France because they're not legal here mm -hmm. um, and on a small number of patients to see how it actually works logistically. So for two years, 3000 patients from across France will get prescriptions of cannabis to treat all kinds of ailments from MS to epilepsy to chronic pain. Mm. I recently met one of these patients who are joining the experiment at the pain center at the Ambroise Paris Hospital in Boulogne, west of Paris. Dr. Didier Bouazira welcomes Joanne Seneco into an office in the pain center. She supports her slight frame with a cane. Her husband helps her ease into the chair in front of the doctor's desk. Bouazira is a neurologist and a pain specialist. He's been seeing Seneco since 2015 when she was desperately looking for relief. She suffers from chronic pain from a disorder called complex regional pain syndrome, which started after a botched knee operation in 2014. The operation severed nerves in her knee. She started having extreme pain in her leg, and it's since spread across her entire body. She's in pain all the time. It's like having a blowtorch on my body, she says. Her face, even behind a surgical mask, looks pinched. I feel burning from my head to my feet constantly, she says. She can't move much on her own. She had to quit her job as an assistant in a middle school, and she spends most of her days in bed, propped up with pillows. Her husband does everything for her. You lose everything, she says, with tears coming to her eyes. The hardest thing is the impact it's had on my daughter, she says. She's 18 now, but for the last seven years, I haven't been able to do anything with her. Seneco has to fill out pages and pages of questionnaires. There are questions about her pain levels, her state of mind. She'll have to do this every month throughout the next two years of the cannabis experiment, each time she comes to fill her prescription. Rate your pain over the last 24 hours, asked the doctor. Is it absent, low, strong, or unbearable? If I say unbearable, would you believe me? You tell me, he says. Seneco is in constant, unbearable pain, but she doesn't let it on. She holds it in. She has no choice. Her pain doesn't respond to any medication or alternative treatments. 
I tried hypnosis, relaxation, she says, on top of all kinds of pain-killing drugs. She's intolerant to morphine. Unlike many sufferers of chronic pain, she's actually never tried cannabis. Doctors have told me to go smoke a joint, she says. Well, where do you buy it? You don't know what's in it. I never dared because I was scared. She is more confident taking cannabis oil under the supervision of Dr. Boissira. The patients are really eager to get these products and they know that they are available in other countries and uh, some of them are, have been abroad to get them. Boissira says many of his patients are already using cannabis on their own, oils and products they buy online or just smoking joints. We discussed this uh, frankly with them and uh, we asked them if they tried smoked cannabis uh, or other types of cannabis. Most of them say yes or no uh, very sincerely. For us, it's important to know. He doesn't particularly encourage it, but if it works to manage their pain, he doesn't tell them to stop either. The problem is that there is no control about the products, and uh, when they buy it on, uh, on the Internet or in the street, obviously there is no control, and uh, that's the issue. So we inform them about this, but obviously they know that. We just have to warn them that there, there might be some issues related to the lack of control of the, on the product. Boissira's pain center, one of the largest in France, is coordinating the medical cannabis experiment. Seneco is only the second person he's enrolled in it. Out of three or four, he'll have in total. Very few people will actually be involved. 3,000 patients across France for all disorders, only 700 of them for pain management. So Boissira has to make difficult choices. Already, the criteria are pretty strict. For this experimentation, only patients with uh, severe and refractory neuropathic pain could be involved. The refractory means that they, they do not respond to at least two or three other classes of drugs. In other words, people whose pain doesn't get better when they take existing painkillers. Still, several dozen of his patients do meet these criteria. He says one thing that turns people off of joining is you can't drive while you're part of the experiment. Also, it all comes with a lot of work. The follow-up is uh, two years. You have to come every month. You have to fill in a number, a large number of questionnaires. So when we explain to them all the constraints, many of them say, OK, decline because it's too complicated. What's notable is that this is an experiment, not a medical study. It's not about whether cannabis works, though doctors will get to see how it affects their patients, but it's more about the logistics. It's just the feasibility of using cannabis distribution and the prescription. Because while doctors like him are convinced that cannabis should be used therapeutically, health authorities have questions, particularly about how it will be processed through France's massive healthcare system. They wanted to check that it was possible to distribute and to import this product. The, the main issue is related to the prescription by non-specialists. What we, they would like us to do is that we start, we initiate the prescription, and then the follow-up is done by uh, GPs. That's a good idea. But the GPs have to go for specific training, and it, it takes some time. It's not that easy. The, the training is not that easy. Doctors and pharmacists do need to be trained in dosages, as there's not one single prescription for cannabis. There are different mixes of the active ingredients, THC and CBD, and each person reacts differently. We have a specific prescription for that, and uh, we have a very progressive, uh, what we call titration, a very uh, progressive uh, increase in the dosage. After a half hour of filling out forms and questionnaires, Seneco can finally receive her prescription. It takes up an entire page. 
Boisira says it's a bit complicated. He's prescribed an oil with an equal mix of CBD and THC, and he explains it'll come in a little bottle with a dropper. He tells her that she'll need to carefully measure out drops to put under her tongue, following the prescription, a quarter milliliter for the first few days, then increasing every few days until she either feels the effects or has a negative reaction. If you have side effects, you stop increasing the dose, he says. If you feel it's working, there's no need to go higher. It's all trial and error. We don't know what dose will work for you, he says. We have to go very progressively. Boisira makes sure Seneco has the form to note any side effects on it. Seneco and her husband say goodbye to the doctor. They head to the hospital's pharmacy in the basement. After meeting with the pharmacist who explains the dosages, Seneco leaves with the oil in a paper bag. It's a 30-milliliter vial of Panaxir, drops manufactured by the Israeli drug company Panaxia. Seneco is hoping it'll work. She says it feels more natural than other drugs. I have the impression that it's healthier than other chemical medicine, she says. It's a plant, closer to nature. It doesn't seem so invasive. She's not expecting cannabis to get rid of all of her pain, but maybe lowering it. Getting to zero pain, I doubt it, she says, given the injuries I have. But who knows, if I can reduce it by half, that would be wonderful. She'll take the first drops in the evening. She's very excited. I'm looking for relief, because I don't have a life anymore. I only go out for doctor's appointments. I've lost everything. All this for a knee operation. It's difficult. Johan, is part of this study, Sarah, that will go on for two years, and then what happens? Well, the idea is that it will give health officials a sense of how they could put cannabis to use generally, and also would calm politicians who might be worried about the use of medical marijuana and or the abuse of it. Um, doctors are hoping this will lead to the opening of actual widespread drug trials in France with an idea to approving the use of cannabis medically, say, in the next five years. So in the meantime, mm. people wanting to use cannabis medically are going to have to go off to the Netherlands or, right. or the UK, if ever they can get in. Lisette, so, Sarah, we've mentioned Napoleon Bonaparte a few times in the podcast of late. True, true. This year is the 200th anniversary of his death, mm. a cause for celebration for some, nostalgia for others. <laughs> but there is a figure in this Napoleon story who's worth a special mention. He's called Toussaint Louverture. He was born in 1743 as a slave in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, which is where this music was originally recorded. And today that country is known as Haiti. 
Toussaint ended up leading a slave revolt that would lead to Haiti getting independence.、Mm. But he paid a price for all of that. On June the seventh, eighteen o two, he was arrested and deported to France, where he died in prison the following year. Ah, hence the anniversary then,、mm. June seventh, and are talking about him this week in history.、Um, he got independence right in eighteen o four, so after his death. Indeed, but、uh, Toussaint did set the ball rolling, if you like. One of his recent biographers described him as the First black superhero of the modern age. Wow, superhero—it's a big <laughs> word. So, how did his superhero origins? Were his superhero <laughs> origins? Well, while he was born a slave, his master gave him an education, and he gained his freedom in 1779 when he was、uh, 33 years old. Now, during the French Revolution, he joined the revolutionary side. Remember,、mm. Haiti was a French colony, right? And in 1791, he became the leader of slaves who were revolting against the plantation owners and. The French colonials. He fought for the Spanish. Those were France's enemies at the time. Right, but then the revolution, the revolutionaries, abolished slavery in 1794. So Toussaint intelligently switched sides, and he fought as a general in the French army, and he played a major role in really driving the Spanish and their British allies from the islands. Right, switching sides and essentially saving, as it were, Saint Domingue for France. <laughs> yeah, if you like, his name Louverture,、uh, which means the opening in French, came from that time. It was a kind of acknowledgement of his bravery in charging into enemy lines. He became the colony's lieutenant governor. And under his watch, Haiti really developed. Toussaint got former slaves, for example, working on the plantations to boost、uh, the local economy. Wow, getting former slaves to go back to their plantations seems、mm, problematic. For sure, yeah,、uh, and that's part of why this story is rather complex. And Toussaint himself is a complex character. He managed to pretty much free the island, though, from French control by 1800. And by that point, though, Napoleon Bonaparte had crowned himself Emperor of France. I imagine he was not so keen on that kind of independence.、Uh, exactly, and in 1802 he decided he wanted to get Haiti back,、mm. uh, partly for commercial reasons. All the coffee and the sugar had tremendous economic value.、Mm. He sent a massive military expedition into Saint Domingue, and to help in the process, he reintroduced slavery. Ooh, imagine the anger there. Yeah, Toussaint, of course, was not going to let go easily. He led the island into battle, and while French troops didn't manage to put Down the revolt, Toussaint himself was defeated. He was arrested on June the seventh, eighteen o two, taken prisoner. He was tried for treason and deported to France, where he died the following year in Fort de Joux. That's in the Jura Mountains in eastern France. A bit cold. <laughs> not like Haiti. No, not at all. <laughs> the following year, on the first of January, eighteen o four, the Haitians managed to drive out the French once and for all, and the island got its independence.、Mm. It explains how Toussaint Louverture is seen. As a superhero, yeah, by some,、uh, some West Indians have presented him as an anti-imperialist freedom fighter.、Uh, here in France, on the more conservative side, people have referred to him as a kind of aspiring landowner who exploited the plantation system for his own benefit.、Mm. But what has become clear in recent times, through better access to French colonial archives, is that Toussaint was a ferocious and very sincere opponent of slavery, and he really knew how to mobilize. 
mobilise the masses. And, and to use them, though, right, to some extent. True. Uh, by forcing former slaves to return to the plantations, you could say that that was tantamount to, to serfdom. Mm. He was also a bit soft on white landowners, tending to protect their property and allowing them to keep political office. Today, a plaque in the Pantheon in Paris commemorates Toussaint and his fight against slavery. But there is a sad footnote to history in all of this. In return for recognising Haitian independence, France in 1825 forced Haiti to pay huge reparations for the loss of its colonial property, including the loss of slaves. So, Sarah, football fans, as you can imagine, are desperate to get back into stadiums and go mental cheering like that uh, for their favourite teams. Yeah, there'll be some progress on this, right, on, on June 9th next week when um, up to 5,000 spectators will be allowed to attend matches using these new COVID health passes. Yeah, but for the moment, it's still sounding a bit like this. And they work it wide here. Quite rich, the feet of Nadia Nadim. So uh, a bit subdued, mm -hmm. as you can hear, uh, because for the moment there are just 1,000 uh, spectators maximum allowed. Um, footballers themselves, though, acknowledge that they're lucky at least to be playing. It could be so much worse, like to see some people losing their jobs and everything. And I'm like, at least we get to play. That's going to be amazing, having more fans on the stadiums. Finally. Finally. COVID is slowly losing. We love it. So that's Nadia Nadim. She plays for Paris Saint-Germain's women's team here in Paris. I met her at the Parc des Princes Stadium on the very day, 19th of May, when the first spectators were allowed back into uh, the stadiums. She's quite a character. Uh, 33 years old, born in Afghanistan. Her mm. dad, um, an army general, was killed by the Taliban in the year 2000 and her mum then paid a people smuggler to get her and her four sisters out of the country to Europe. They thought they were going to the UK but they ended up in Denmark Ooh. in a refugee camp. That's different. <laughs> yeah. There she learned to play football, to love the game, and she ended up joining the national team, the Danish national team, where she still plays as a striker, as she does for PSG. Wow, that's quite a story, quite a climb. It is, and she tells that story in her recently published book. It's called Mon Histoire, My Story. It's a very good read, very exciting. It's really interesting to read about the refugee story from the, the first person point of view. Mm. But when I spoke to her, I was mostly interested in the present rather than the past and how she's fitted in as a young, rather headstrong Muslim woman in one of France's top women's football teams. Her slogan is dream big and she tries to live up to that. When I start playing football and I fell in love with the game, at that point I didn't even, even know that women footballers could reach this level. So you used to play for a while for Manchester City yes. and in your book you talk about how you didn't really feel at home there yeah. and you wanted to leave. You're very relieved to be able to get signed to PSG. So you came here in January 2019. Yes. So do you now feel at home in France? Yeah, definitely. And felt home right away because I think the way I've been also received by the people, you know, the culture and what is it about the culture i think one of the things that i really i really love is the fact that it's so multicultural you know you have all kind of type of people you know you have like different religions that you see and it's like 
understood uh, more the people that I'm surrounded by and the people that I first met, the staff and the PG members, they made me feel really welcome. And I didn't feel like an outsider because maybe I look different or I have a different skin color or I have a different belief, you know. The team, it's remarkably diverse, isn't it? Definitely. And that's one of the things that I love the most, you know. Uh, I'm not the only one standing up. That hasn't necessarily been the experience of all refugees in France. Of course, not always going to be easy. And I think also when I came here, I didn't come as a refugee. I think that's also the different... You were a refugee in Denmark. Exactly. You speak seven, eight, nine languages? Yeah. I, I mean, guess that couple. helps. Yeah, that definitely do help. And also, I think as a person, I am someone who seek the contact. I love being in contact with people. I love learning about cultures, you know, languages, other people. Your grandfather inspired you, didn't he? In that yeah, respect? exactly, yeah. He said that if you know one language, you're one person. If you know two, you're two, meaning that you can, like, you know, connect with more people. You're a Muslim. How do you live your faith as a female footballer? Perfectly fine. I don't have to show it for ever, anyone else. It's between me and God at the end, you know, and I feel like a real Muslim, you know. I, I pray as much as I can, you know. I I know if you look at me and know oh, I'm playing football, then you're like, oh, she must not be a Muslim. But I think that's such a, a wrong conception of what Islam is or what a religion is because at the end I think it's there for you to be a good human being. Unfortunately, you know, over the last couple of, well, five, a bit more, maybe a decade, you know, you see this trend of Islamophobia and, like, you know, this fear of, of religion. And it's upsetting because a minority of Muslim people are ruining the religion's name. And that's also one of the reasons I'm so outspoken about certain stuff is because I think it's important to educate. Because at the end, I feel like if everyone understands and has no fears towards a certain issue, could be anything, Islamophobic, sexism, racism, they would act differently. What about fitting in to PSG? You say, for example, in your book that in women's football and here, you didn't always see a lot of fury, a lot of fire in the women's team. You know, I think passion is very, very important, you know, and, and, and having that fire on the field is something that you can feel, uh, sense, because that's how you're going to win, how bad do you want it, you know? And that's something we needed to have more of, especially in the team when I arrived, and I think we've got there. I think Have now, you brought that then? Yeah, I think I've helped, uh, you know, and I think now I almost feel our trainings are harder than our games um, because people are so, like, competitive and everyone wants to win, you know, and I love that, you know, that energy. You hate losing? Yeah, definitely. Losing games, big games, you know, can make me lose sleep for weeks. What do you think about being in this really, really famous club, but being in the women's team? When I arrived here, I came around the stadium, and there's all these drawings of the whole yeah. of the men's team, yeah. not a single woman's face. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done, isn't there? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think it's not only here, I think it's everywhere in the world. Um, I think, you know, in sport, when <laughs> every aspect of life, there's this huge gap that needs to get closer, at least. People who love sport, watch sport, should have open minds, you know, investors. It's a big project, but unfortunately, it's something that's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's going to take time. Um, but it is so much better in some other countries. In the U.S., Norway, Brazil, these are countries that have fought to get equal pay, for example, for women. France does seem to be dragging its heels on this. 
Yes, I agree. France is a bit behind, but the ball is rolling and it's not going to happen overnight. That's something that everyone has to kind of understand. You know, now you see the trend that is happening in Italy, for instance, that all the big clubs are having a female team, you know, which is, I think, is amazing and important for the growth of the game. So it's on the right direction, but yeah, some people are slower than others. This fire, this ambition that you have, wanting to be the best, where does it come from? Definitely have it in my genes. My dad was really competitive, you know, being a general and, you know, played sport himself. My mom was really, really, really competitive, which was shocking to me to discover. And then, you know, circumstances. I think what I've been through as a kid have almost forged me to this person I am. It's a mixed. One is that I really enjoy winning. I love that feeling. Secondly is also that I want to succeed no matter what because I don't want to go back to where I was as a kid, you know, being poor and all that. I want to be so successful that at a certain point I can, you know, spread around me and then, like, help other people. Some people might be surprised, Nadia, to hear that you studied really hard to get a high-level medical qualification. You've got this other career waiting for you. Mm. How come? I love football. I was, I'm playing football for my hobby. Obviously, it became my job, and then, you know, I made money out of it. It's amazing, but I have other stuff that I can help other people with and I know that I have a brilliant mind you know and I don't want it to get to waste so yeah becoming a doctor I know that I'm going to be in situations where I'm going to have so much responsibility and can make an impact on some person's life and also as a doctor probably going to make shit tons of money that will compensate yeah that, you haven't made the millions you haven't made here yeah yeah true that can you tell us how much you earn no, I don't want to like put that out, but I think obviously if you compare it to the men's, it's not like in millions, you know. But again, it has improved a lot over the years. I can have an easy life, not complaining about that. And, but for me, if you really, really want to bring the change, you need to have like totally freedom in terms of like finances. Mm-hmm. Because at the end, if you have brilliant ideas, you need investors, you know. And if someone's hungry on the street, they need food, not a hug. And that's it for Spotlight on France this week. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. If you have any questions about what you've heard, why not send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Spotlight on France. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, June the 17th. Bye-bye. Bye, Alison. <laughs>